that time, I didn't. I thought, oh, I won't really engage on the on the uh, platform, on the WhatsApp group, or whatever. But through my lecturing at Vips, we'd had to put all our stuff online. And one of the things that I used to say to the students was, you must speak out on the forum. You must post things on the forum. So I decided there and then, actually, you better kind of walk your own talk here, Claire. So I did actually immerse myself. I actually immersed myself lock, stock, and barrel in the tribe sober world. I extended the challenge straight away in my own head. Once I'd got past about two weeks, I thought, I'm not going to stop at 66 days. I'm going to take it to 100. Then I could see that was just before Christmas. And I thought, I'm going to go through Christmas. I'm going to take it to, and I kept extending it. That's how I did it. And I journaled. um, I kept the tracker. I listened to a podcast today. I kind of did Tribe Sober Immersion, actually. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 174. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. You're always distracted by that next glass or when you're going to have a drink. And when that goes away, you can focus on so many other things in your life. You can take up knitting and art and mosaicing and walking with your kids at the oddest times. Instead of waiting for the five o'clock ding-dong wine glass, you can be outside bird watching or making something in the garden or you know you you completely open up your life from a a squished focus onto something that you don't need for your body to something that's creative and sort of boosting for yourself as a person. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community just go to tribesoper.com and hit join our tribe. If I had to describe a typical tribe member, then I would pick a lady in her 40s or 50s, a successful career woman with a family. Nobody would dream that this lady had a problem with alcohol, but in fact she's been worried about her drinking for years. My guest this week is tribe member Claire B, and she pretty much fits that profile. But she's a great example of someone who found her tribe, followed our advice, threw the book at her sobriety, and she's never looked back. These days, she's thriving in her alcohol-free life and busy inspiring other people. I began our conversation by asking Claire to introduce herself. I currently live in Johannesburg, and I live with my family, which comprises my husband and my two grown-up daughters. I trained as a nurse, but very fortunately, I think for the world and for me, I found midwifery. And that really is how I identify. I'm a midwife. And more latterly, I've also trained through UCT as a life coach. So let's dive into your drinking story, shall we? When did it start? Were you a teenage drinker? Well, I was born and brought up in England. And I say that because I think that brings some bearing the context of growing up in England in the late 70s, early 80s. Knowing that I was coming, going to talk to you, it made me think about my sort of initiation into drinking. I was brought up in a home where there wasn't alcohol. Nobody drank at home. And my parents didn't really go out. My dad belonged to a sports club and he would go and he would drink there. But certainly nobody drank at home. 
And I think by the time I was about 16, 17, I started to get invited to 18th birthday parties. And that's when I started drinking. How was it? I loved it. I'm absolutely appalled to think that I drank vodka and orange and not even fresh orange juice, probably sickly Brit. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I can remember drinking that. And, and what about me? I was drinking whiskey and Coke. Ooh. That's interesting in itself because it just emphasised that alcohol itself tastes so disgusting. You know, we've got to pour <laughs> sugary drinks on top of it to make it palatable. Yeah. But then that's how we, we start thinking in our subconscious mind, oh, this is nice. So talk to me about your 20s and 30s. So as a student, I and I've said I was a nurse, so, you know, I did um, shift work and night work. I mean, I drank when I went out, but I didn't drink on my own. It wasn't problematic. I've really thought about this over the last few weeks, knowing I was going to talk to you. It was a sort of regular social drinking that everybody did. I'm not saying it was one drink and you stopped far from it, but... Yeah, not not what I would have at the time considered problematic. No, you you were probably drinking within the guidelines, do you think? The low-risk guidelines? I don't think I even cared there were guidelines then, if there were any. <laughs> <laughs> None of us did, but I'm just trying to, to get a feel for how much... Yeah, and also financially. You know, they say one and a half bottles. Yeah, financially, you'd yeah. Be, yes. you know, that would also scuffer you as well. You can only go so far. Then in my early 20s, yeah. very early 20s, I came to South Africa. And I really was struck by the culture of alcohol and how much alcohol there was around. You could, you know, people would drink wine at lunchtime and everything was around. I mean, I'd never had a champagne breakfast. And that was sort of like, yo, whoa. My first birthday here was a champagne breakfast and that sort of thing. And I, I do remember thinking this was wonderful and, and embracing it, lock, stock and barrel. That makes me laugh, Claire, because when I came here from England, I was much older. I was 50, but I was drinking a lot in those days. And I remember arriving here and going to the wine farms and things, you know, all the stuff you usually yeah. do, and thinking, wow, this is great. <laughs> it's just like the UK in that there's lots of booze, but we actually get to drink under the sunshine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when did you start to think? about it that it may be something you wanted to change i'll tell you when i reflectively now can can see a problem and that would have been in my late 20s and i remember coming back from a very boozy lunch and coming home and me saying to my husband oh i'm going to have another glass of wine and you know i'd already the party had happened but i carried it on at home and, and that became a bit of a habit for me that i'd go somewhere but then I'd still carry on and I'd carry on drinking when I got home, sort of not knowing when to stop. And that's been, my, you know, my big thing, not having an off button. And then I think by the time I had my, I had two daughters who I had when I, I was 32 and 35, respectively. So obviously that sort of slows your drinking a little bit over pregnancy and the sort of lactation period. Although it certainly didn't, my mother does say she remembers me breastfeeding my second child with a gin and tonic in my hand. But I think by my 40s, I knew it was a problem. Yeah. Okay. Can I just ask you about that as you're a lactation expert? Mm. Is it really a no-no to drink alcohol when you're breastfeeding? What's your well, view? So, certainly in pregnancy, it is a no-no. I mean, that's an absolute given. In lactation, no. I think that it's absolutely, you know, the odd glass of wine, but it should always be straight after the breastfeed. And it would be one glass. Because okay. I think for millennia, that's what women have done across the world. I mean, you look in Europe, I mean, there's no way people have not drunk wine and yeah. been feeding babies. But I think, yeah, straight after the feed and one glass. So did you go through those I must cut down phases? Did you set rules around your drinking? I think I wanted to be given a set of rules. And when I was, I think I was about 46 and we went to live in China. The perception was before we went to live in Beijing that it was really difficult to get hold of wine, that we wouldn't be able to get it. And I actually remember welcoming that and thinking, oh, this is going to be fantastic. It actually didn't turn out to be true because you could get, <laughs> you, you just threw a bit more money at it and you could get lots of it. Yeah. And I don't even like Chardonnay. I've never liked a wooded Chardonnay, but I drank gallons of it for the three and a half years that I lived there. But yeah, as I say, if I think I was looking for something, looking for almost like a reason why I should, I'd have to stop or should stop. 
yeah, that's very interesting. But I think whatever country we go to live in, you know, even the kind of hardcore Middle East countries, the, the expats always manage to find plenty of booze. Well, don't I think, they? yeah, and I think that becomes certainly became sort of a bit of my modus operandi that I would seek out drinking opportunities, I would manipulate situations so it included alcohol. I've stolen this expression from my niece, but it took up a lot of my bandwidth. Yeah, it did. It's a very good expression. And I mean, she means mental space, mm. doesn't she? Mm. And I think that's one of the huge advantages of sobriety. When we finally stop, we can think about more interesting yes. things. Yes, yes. Because I used to drive myself mad, you know, trying and failing and trying and failing to cut down and then feeling bad about myself and then having another try. You can get stuck in oh, that you, trap you, so you easily. You set yourself up for failure. You can see that when you're out of it. Yeah. So I did, I did do... Yeah. Um, you know, I do a one month off, um, I do a six six weeks off, but yeah, nothing really committed. And if I'm honest, I think I was really scared. I was very, very scared of this whole idea of not, not drinking forever, never having another drink. That just sounded so scary. I think we're all like that when we're drinking because we, we just think that we're going to lose so much. Whereas, in fact, for most of us, it's more about what do we gain? Yeah. <laughs> but it's a mind shift that you have I, to make. I think it's a mind shift. And for me, it's also a journey that I've had to make. You know, I have clear memories of there almost being two Claire's, the sort of sensible, well, call it sensible, whatever, but the one who would say, go on, go on, go on, grab that bottle of wine from the wine fridge. The other one saying, no, no, don't. But the other one would always win. Yeah. And even hating that moment of conflict, but still letting it happen. Well, that's that's what happens because our subconscious is kind of egging us on to drink. Yet in our conscious mind, we know that's probably not the right thing for us. So we end up with these two voices, the conflict. And, and it's, a, it's a horrible feeling because I had that for mm. years. And it's it's almost like anxiety because we, we can just sense this conflict, this internal conflict. Uh, what's it called? Cognitive dissonance. It's even got a name, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And through the work I've done through Tribe Sober and it is work and I think that's really important that's how I feel about it I've worked hard at this and that sort of understanding about the sort of limbic part of my brain and the fact it's my brain trying to protect me and it's just doing what it's always done yeah. the, the neuroscience really really resonated with me that is what stopped yeah. it for me yeah. being a battle and it started to put some sort of sense into what was going on in my head it also took the guilt out of it for me it really was I could say, it really is, That's you've trained your brain to do this. That helped me a lot. Just because we've trained our, our brain to drink, it, it means that we can train it not to mm. drink. <laughs> we can. I mean, I do always laugh and say I don't have neural pathways. Mine were, you know, full on, full on motorways, probably seven lanes. Absolutely. Well, they would be, wouldn't they? After 30, 30 of odd years of it, yeah. Oh, I'll beat you there. Mine was 40. <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow you to beat me on this one. I'm but okay. I had a super high one. <laughs> and then I think of that alcohol-free road in contrast as being a little overgrown country road. And we have to do the work for years before that becomes a motorway and the super highway gradually falls into disrepair. Yeah, I, for me, I think at this point, I'm sort of jumping ahead, but I, I do view it that I have done work and it will be ongoing. And sort of a little bit yeah. almost like a garden. You tend a garden, you see the benefit, but it's never complete. And that's sort of how I view this. That's, that's, it's going to be an ongoing part of me. I accept that and I will continue to do the work. That's a lovely analogy, Claire. And I like gardening analogies too. I think uh, at the beginning, we come across a lot of people that aren't really ready to do it yet. And they might join us for a while or come to one workshop and then disappear. But we, we always feel as if we planted some seeds. Yes. And I've had people come back after years and said, oh, you know, I, I wasn't ready, but I've been thinking about it. It's been at the back of my mind and now I'm ready. Which, which... But interestingly, you saying that one of the things I have thought of is when I, when I told my family, my family in the UK and family here about how I feel and whatever, that they've sort of looked at me and said, you didn't really have a problem and all of this, except it has started to come out that my, my sister has said to me, yes, you know, 
you, dad was aware that you had a bit of an issue and so-so. And when I say, well, why didn't anybody call me out on it? And I'm not blaming my family at all, but that's something that I want to carry forward as well. I don't call people out if they don't ask me to, but when people have they know you're not drinking, they'll tend to have a conversation with you and they'll talk about somebody else in their family who's, who they're worried about, etc. And you say, they say, do you think this could be a problem? And I don't say, oh, no, no, no. I say, I think such and such is a flag. I can see a flag. I think yeah. people need to speak out a little bit more that if you're concerned about someone in your family, in your circle, speak out to them. Call them on it. Yeah. Be gentle, but uh, make them aware of the red flags, which, of course, are things like drinking alone and not having an off switch, et cetera. Et yeah. Cetera. And, and being a member of the healthcare profession, I mean, again, we're really remiss. Um, <laughs> people just don't talk about it. People go to health, go to doctors yeah. and it's it's not even asked about. And and my own experience. And again, I, I, I portion no blame to anybody. I I know I know my world I had a, a cerebral aneurysm five years ago I had a massive catastrophic event and literally coming out of surgery maybe the next day the neurosurgeon was there and one of the first questions I asked him was can I drink now I mean that should have been a flag to myself I finished my course of chemo for my breast cancer and that was my question to the oncologist well will I be able to drink and he said yes <laughs> So I carried yeah. on. But that was years ago, to be honest. That was 14 years ago now. And I think these days the link between breast cancer and alcohol is more widely known. And I doubt whether a doctor would give you the, the go-aheads to drink if you were just coming through breast cancer these days. It might because I think it requires a deeper and broader conversation and there's not always time for that in our health system. Yeah, I talked to a doctor recently and we were talking about medical school and he said they didn't really cover alcohol at all. Yeah. And when you think it's linked to 60 diseases, seven types of cancer, but he said no. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Let's go back to your story. You came back from China having put away quite a lot of Sauvignon no Blanc, was it? Mm. Chardonnay, excuse me. <laughs> Don't think I've touched it since. Let's get it right. And what happened then? Did did you come back to South Africa? Yes, which needs my husband yeah. and I are South African. We chose to come back here and have never regretted it. And that's when I, I did a sort of a four-week stint of not drinking. And I've been running for years as well. And so I sort of do running, yoga, swimming, all that sort of stuff. And I tied it in with a race that I wanted to run. And then I'd have another break of six weeks or so. But that pretty much carried on throughout my late 40s and well into my 50s, actually. Yeah, until I heard your voice on the radio. And what was it about what what I was saying that kind of grabbed you and thought, mm, I think, I think, I'll give I think this it was the timing. I was working at, um, I was working in academia, I was working at Pitts University, and I had really reached a point of burnout in my job. And so for the first time in my life, I was going to see a psychologist. And I was just driving back from a session with her. And, you know, you're talking about things and you're being made to think and explore a little bit. And you came on the radio and you were talking about the Sober Spring Challenge for 2021. And yeah, it was it was like that. Before I went to China, I wanted someone to tell me there'd be no alcohol in China. You gave me a this is this is what we're doing. And I thought this is for me. She's speaking to me. This is what I'm going to do. And I did it. I signed up with you there and then. You did indeed. Mm. Was one of the attractions the fact that you could say to people, I'm doing a challenge, was that something that appealed to you? Yeah, I, actually, it, you're right, it was. I do I do love a challenge. I'm one of those people who say, let's go vegan for a month. Yes. Let's do this for, I love trying different things and yeah. exploring. And so there was that. And at that time, I didn't, I thought, oh, I won't really engage on the, on the uh, platform, on the WhatsApp group or whatever. But through my lecturing at Vits, we'd had to put all our stuff online. And one of the things that I used to say to the students was, you must speak out on the forum, you must post things on the forum. So I decided there and then actually 
you better kind of walk your own talk here, Claire. So I did actually immerse myself. I actually immersed myself lock, stock and barrel in the tribe sober world. I extended the challenge straight away in my own head. Once I'd got past about two weeks, I thought, I'm not going to stop at 66 days. I'm going to take it to 100. Then I could see that was just before Christmas. And I thought, I'm going to go through Christmas. I'm going to take it to, and I kept extending it. That's how I did it. And I journaled. um, I kept the tracker. I listened to a podcast today. I kind of did Tribe Sober Immersion, actually. You threw the book at it, as we say these days. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I really dived in. And at times it was, I mean, but I think it's tiring anyway in those early days. There's so much going on. Oh, yes. And yeah, yeah. no, I just, yeah, I threw yeah. myself. And you are detoxing as well. Yes, yeah. yes. But I, I love what you said about doing it in stages, because for all of us, that F word, the forever word is very scary. But doing it in stages and already after a couple of weeks of sobriety, you were feeling kind of stronger and more clear headed and started thinking, maybe I'll do this a little bit longer. And that's how it seems to work for people. You get to 100 days, then you go for six months. That sense of achievement. And and one of the, you know, it's fantastic and and really, you know, pushes you forward. And one of the things for me was I would think, okay, I've done two weeks, three weeks. And then obviously I got, I was sort of call it the itch that's sort of like, okay, God, have a drink, have a drink, have a drink. And then I would think, no, no, hang on a minute. Look at what you have done. And Claire has worked really hard to get to this point. Why would you do that to her? And that yeah. that's always been a, a, a motivator for me. Like I have silly things like if I've run up a hill, I will never walk that hill again because I know I can run it. So I can't go for the same sort of, I've done that. No, don't go back. You've done that much. Yeah. yeah, don't let yourself down. Yeah. That sort of that kept me going forward, and I have a very, very supportive family. Um, they were very accepting. I, I can't say they got it. I don't think they still get it. My husband is genuinely one of those people who alcohol doesn't bother him. I mean, I've said to him, "You mean you could yeah. go to a wedding, and it wouldn't bother you that there was no alcohol?" I said, "It wouldn't bother me in the least." Yeah, and I was sort of like, "Wow." <laughs> So you have now passed your first soberversary, haven't you, Claire? I have, and it's my version of a soberversary that I haven't not not had a drink at all, but I have had my first year of where I have felt totally calm, in control, and I'm just not in that place. I'm not in that dark, fighting Oh, that, yeah, place of torment, actually, is how I look back on it. Yeah, that has reached a year. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on that. You've already mentioned that you're still doing the work. So what would you say are the key things that you're doing to sustain your sobriety and thrive in your alcohol-free or almost alcohol-free life? <laughs> it is. I've had, yeah, literally I have the occasional glass of champagne. That's the only thing I drink. And it's very much on my terms when I want to. And I don't pre-plan it. It will be just at a family event or something. And I'll think, okay, I'll have a glass. And after one glass, I'm done. I don't even want it. So what am I doing? I'm staying connected with Tribe Sober. I go to as many of the coffee meetups in Johannesburg as I can. And I talk to people from Tribe Sober and stay connected with them. I also regularly listen to the podcasts. And I still do read um, Quitlet, scout around and read stuff as it comes up and keep reinforcing it that way. What was the last one you read? The Joy of Being Sober. What was that one? It wasn't Claire Pooley. It was yeah. another one. The Surprising Joy one, of Being Sober. One. I love that title. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. And then just like articles that pop up, I find quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. There are many, aren't there? Do, do you feel there's a bit of a shift towards sobriety? Yes, I do. And in fact, another thing that I've just stopped, I watched, did a bit of binge watching on BritBox and it's called The Dry. And um, yes, yeah, I've just watched that. And it's I great. actually am from an Irish, I am Irish, I'm from an Irish family. Uh-huh. So yeah, in fact, that really moved me, that series. It yeah, really, too. yeah, I kind of just felt for her so much and you're thinking and I could say I was so lucky because the story the girl who's trying to um, 
embrace her sobriety and her family are just doing everything to derail her. I suppose I'm at the stage now as well, I'm quite happy to bring humour to it as well. I mean, I think humour helps with everything. Yeah. So I like like totally. that side of it as well. Yeah, that's what I do. And I own it. Yeah. That's the other thing. I absolutely own. And people say, you're still not drinking. Yeah, absolutely. And they ask you why. And I'm honest about why I don't drink. You know, and I come out, maybe couch, you know, it was my friend and it wasn't a friend. I didn't moderate. And then if I have conversations with people and they really want to ask me, I'll say, yeah, I suppose use the word alcoholic. I'm, I'm not afraid of it. It comes, it's like a, it's a spectrum. Totally. I like the way that you're out and proud because I think we can help other people just by by being unashamed of our sobriety. Yeah, and that's another thing that you're saying, how do I do it? I do try and give back coaching, but on a pro bono basis for Tribe Sober or just people reaching out to people and you think you can help them. And I'm happy to do, and I have been happy to oh. do that. Yeah, well, I know you've helped and inspired a lot of our people, so thank you for that. So, Claire, top three benefits of sobriety, please. My sleep. And being a woman of 59, that must not be underestimated. At that stage where everybody's talking about how dreadful their sleep is, mine is heavenly. I am filled with little dopamine kicks before my head even hits the pillow. And then I generally wake wow. up eight hours later. So you, you're probably getting your seven cycles of REM these Heading days. It, well, I can feel those little spindles washing my brain. Yeah, yeah. That's yes. In the early days, that was something the, the sleep felt very restorative as well. It almost felt like my brain wanted to really to heal. And that's why I felt a lot of that happened is through the sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So my sleep. I think actually my self-esteem, because th- I'm, I'm actually quite proud of what I've done. And I don't say that easily. I'm not, I haven't been brought up as someone who would say, I'm great at this, I'm great at that. You know, I carry my heritage firmly on that one. English, Irish, you don't, you're not proud of anything that you've done. I am proud of what I've done here. I am. So you should be. Yeah. So you should be. Me too. I think also, Claire, there's this feeling, isn't there, that because it, it carries over to other things, because we think, well, if I could do that, I could do all, all sorts of things. Yes, yes, it's true. Because it's not easy. No, you're right. And um, I'm actually in the throes of sort of a reinvention of myself. I'm building a new practice and um, calling it the Good Enough Mother Connection. And I'm really focusing on the traumas nice. that mothers are going through, entering into motherhood through pregnancy. And a lot of it, the post-traumatic stress, and a lot of it resonates back to the drinking. And you're right. I have this belief that I, I think I can do this. I think I'm all right with that. Yeah. And I think I have, I said about my bandwidth being broader because I've, I've freed up. I, I don't think about <laughs> alcohol all the time. In fact, I rarely think about it. And I feel calmer. I don't have to start hmm. the party and I don't have to finish the party. And that was me. I had to start yeah. it, and I was always the last man dancing. Me too, me too. My husband used to have to drag mm. me out of places. Mm. And now I'm, oh, can we go now? Yeah. I'm the one giving the eyeball to Paul across the table saying, can we go now? Yeah. And I'm calm and peaceful know, with it. Just the same. Yeah. And when we are sober, you know, not only do we get the, the bandwidth, you don't have to work so hard and you can direct all of that energy into something much more interesting and worthwhile than trying to keep the show on the road and trying not to not to collapse because you're drinking and also for me I think because I don't feel I have to prove anything to anybody around you know well jeepers they obviously can see how much I you know have a at least you know half a bottle to a bottle of wine every night therefore I must be seen to be performing the next day now, if I actually have a slowdown, I'm yeah. quite happy to say, oh, I just can't really get it together today. And I don't feel guilty about yeah. it. Yeah. Which I would yeah. never, That's never a very good have point. done before. Because it, it would have been an admission. Yeah. yeah. I used to wake up with the most terrible hangovers mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, my husband would say, oh, you look a bit rough. And I'd say, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm absolutely fine. And I'd, I'd work so hard that day to achieve a lot because I wanted to demonstrate that I was mm-hmm. fine. I'm trying to remember the conversation that is so blotted out of your head. I always thought that any time well, my husband would say, but we discussed that last night, I think it's called it's because of the alcohol. And actually, people do forget 
nobody remembers all of yeah. you get the odd person who remembers all of the detail I'm saying that because I still, I yeah, still forget we're, things. We're, we're hypercritical <laughs> of ourselves because there's so much guilt, isn't there, involved huge, in, in huge it? Guilt. So imagine, Claire, that someone's listening to this and they are drinking too much. They know they're drinking too much, but they've just got no idea how to get started on, on this journey. What, what would you say to them? I mean, is it worthwhile for a start? Is it worth all the hard work? Well, joining Try Sober was, was one of the best decisions of my life without a shadow of a doubt. So the decision to join, don't be afraid to do it, go for it. Because what's lovely here is you're not forced into any kind of program. You don't have to admit to anything you don't want to. You can actually set your own pace. And I think that's really important. Yeah. You're not going to be shamed. It's all going to happen at your pace. And I think maybe opening up to some truths about yourself and everything can be scary. But yeah, the benefits are, they are massive. That, I'd have to say, go for it. But... With Tribe Sober, you can kind of custom make it yourself. You can go at the pace you want. And those people are there and they, they've gone through it. The, you know, the pearls of wisdom that have come to me. And in fact, early on, it was one of Lucy's things that resonated with me about chasing only one bunny at a time. Because people come on board and they're so excited. You can, you can see it in the WhatsApp group. Yeah, They're so, everything is, oh, and they're going to do this. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it. And you think, that's great. Some of you will, but some of you will crash and burn. And I loved her yeah. one bunny at a time. And another yeah. comment that she made to somebody once, it is Lucy again, actually. And this is why I haven't made the forever. Because for me, the forever is, I don't, I, I don't want to. I, for me, I can make that decision day by day, moment by moment. Hmm. It's not occupying my head anymore. So that side of it has been taken away. It kind of gave me back my power. But back to people thinking about it, I think as you always say, that they, there's always that sober curiosity. If you need to think of steps hmm. You can't throw yourself in boots and all. You don't want to become hardline fundamental just yet. Just dip your toe, <laughs> dip your toe in the water and be sober curious. Yeah, I even say to some people sometimes, because people ask me all sorts of things, you know, they, from the website, you can WhatsApp me directly and people say to me things like, do I have to be sober to join Tribe Sober? <laughs> and I say, not even, just carry on drinking, but join the community, yeah. listen and learn. Because once you learn about the science of it and the psychology, and once you see people further down the road that are talking about how awesome their alcohol-free lives are, you start thinking, hmm, maybe I want some of that. And that, that's how it works. And you've reminded me that when I did first join, and I went to the one of the early coffee days as well, the sense of community, but also that you'd speak to people who... I couldn't get over the fact that I thought they had seen inside my head. That yeah, yeah. was massive for me, that I was mixing with people who yeah. actually got it. That yeah. would be yeah. a big thing, going back to people who are thinking about it. Yeah, give it a go, because there are people in Tribe yeah. Sober who are going gonna to get you. They're going to get where you're coming from. And I, I don't believe in you know being evangelical about this at all. I think it's everybody's journey. And people will do it in their own way. And I think that's also important because to take ownership of it is much better than following somebody else's plan. So yeah. I think Tribe Sober offers that. Yeah, well, we try to keep it flexible and to keep it personal as well. The fact that only people that have been through this will really understand you, whereas Certainly, my husband didn't, for example. He would just say, he never told me to quit drinking, but he'd say, just drink a bit less. <laughs> when we go out tonight, just, just have one glass of wine. He had no idea that that was an impossibility Absolutely, for me. you're already um, counting the glasses while you've got the first one, I've got the next one, course. and I'll, you know. No, no, it's <laughs> not on the radar. So I had people like him in my world, and then I had my drinking buddies, of course, I remember one hilarious evening and I started by saying, oh, can't wait for, for this drink. I said, I think I'm becoming an alcoholic. I'm, I so look forward to drinking in the evening. And everyone else said, oh, I'm, I'm sure I'm an alcoholic as well. And we're laughing our heads off. 
And another time I said, oh, I'm so worried about my drinking. And they said, don't be ridiculous, Jana. Everybody drinks a bottle of wine a night. And it's true. If you mix with drinkers, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you that. So neither conversation is helpful because you don't want to be told to cut down and you don't want to be told that there's not a problem either. No, I so agree. To mix with people that acknowledge it's a problem and that they're going to do something about it. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. So what about tips to stay on track? Because we haven't talked about your kind of early sobriety much. Was that a struggle? Did you have any tricks to keep it all going? My tricks were, I think, as I said, just checking myself all the time. For every couple of days I'd made progress, don't let her down. She did that. You mustn't let her down, myself down. Keep going. Don't make that a waste of time sort of thing, what you did before. Oh, I really did totally got into AF drinks and in fact, I went to, um, mm. it was it was September, so I'd only just started. And I went to a, a very, very sort of smart four-star, five-star game lodge. And I arrived with all my alcohol-free drinks. But I I, remember I didn't that. know there was going to be a bar there. I didn't hadn't really worked out what the catering story was. And the, the drivers who picked us up, all they saw was this woman getting off this vehicle with all her bottles. And they were saying, we, we've got a full bar. And I'm sure they're thinking, you're she's really <laughs> hardcore. But meanwhile, it was all sure alcohol-free yeah, drinks. So I did have those. And um, I still have them occasionally. But it is less and less, actually. Yeah, me too. I do enjoy an alcohol-free beer or that kind of stuff. For me, it wasn't a problem going to social events. And that's why I say it's so different for everybody that first drink, have a plan for your first drink, know what you're going to have. And as everybody says, once the first drink's over, everybody's forgotten what you're doing anyway. Nobody really cares. They're all whizzing it up themselves. And what else did I do? I kept exercising. I was quite kind to myself about the fact that I didn't worry about what I ate. I naturally like to eat mm. healthily, but if I had my hand in the biscuit tin or I actually have also <laughs> discovered that I have a cross-addiction problem. I've learned a lot about myself. I was someone who never ate chocolates. Now the whole family know, give her a bag of Quality Street and I'll hoover my way through them. So I've learned I have an addictive personality. And sugar, I used to drink my sugar, now I have to eat it. Sleep, sleep was a big one. Sleep, AF yeah. drinks, and journaling. Journaling, journaling, journaling. Yeah. I like what you said about not throwing the hard work away. And that's why I love our trackers, the annual mm. trackers, because people can record their sober stretches. Even if they have a, a slip up one night, mark it on the tracker and then get back on the bus. And I think people seeing their sober stretches get longer and longer. They realize they're making progress. And it is about progress, not perfection. I Absolutely. Think. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I I have only had one one day one. I am quite tough on myself. I do like to achieve. And so I'm quite proud of that bit as well. And I don't intend to lose that little badge of my one day one. I like it. Yeah, some of the tips, listen, yeah, listening to stuff the, on the podcast, what works for you, what doesn't work. Yeah, being open to trying different things as well. Kind of, I made it a bit of a, I made it yeah. a project actually. I mean, it's a journey of self-discovery as well, Absolutely. I think, because that's that's why we like to offer the yoga, the meditation, the art therapy. We want people, we want our members to try different things. And by making them really affordable, people can dip into this and that and, and see if it's right oh, for it's, them. It's absolutely, it can be the opportunity, the sort of start of a journey of self-awareness and self-growth. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for the share and all the lovely things you said about Tribe Sober. Let's pull out a few key points. 
Claire's parents didn't drink much, so her first experience of drinking was as a teenager at those 18th birthday parties. Vodka and a sweet, concentrated orange juice was her tipple. As she says, she went straight for the hard stuff, but of course she had to add sweetened orange juice to make it palatable, just as I was doing with my whiskey and coke. As a trainee nurse, Claire would drink when she went out, but she would never drink alone, and it was not at all problematic in those days. In her early 20s, Claire moved from the UK to South Africa, and she was struck by the drinking culture she found. There was wine at lunchtime, and in fact she celebrated her first birthday in South Africa with a champagne breakfast. And in fact she embraced this culture and thought it was pretty great. But the first time she began to worry about her drinking was in her late 20s when she came home from a very boozy lunch and found herself wanting to have another glass of wine. That became a bit of a habit for Claire. Going out for drinks and then carrying on the party alone when she got home. She realised that just like so many of us, she didn't have an off switch. That's definitely a red flag, as is drinking alone. Other warning signs of alcohol dependence are regularly drinking more than the low-risk limits, which are in fact just one and a half bottles of wine a week. Also trying and failing to cut down again and again. And also when all your social activities revolve around alcohol. I asked Claire if she tried to cut down or set rules for her drinking And she explained that she actually wanted someone else to set the rules for her. She was actually looking for a reason to stop drinking. And she thought she'd found one when she relocated to China, as she wasn't expecting alcohol to be so readily available. And she remembered welcoming that situation. However, when she got there, she found that alcohol was available. And in fact, she drank a lot during her three years there. She would find herself engineering situations where she could drink, and as she said, the subject took up an awful lot of her bandwidth. People sometimes ask me if I think they're drinking too much. I usually answer that if they are thinking about it, even if it's a niggling thought at the back of their mind, then that's probably a sign that they should take action, even if they're not drinking huge amounts. Quite simply, if it's on your mind, you'd be happier without it. Those of us who've spent years trying and failing to moderate know only too well that it takes up far too much mental space. And when we get sober, we can finally find peace. Claire would try the odd alcohol-free challenge, but found the thought of quitting drinking forever extremely scary. She began to feel that there were two Claire's, the sensible one and the other one who was egging her on to drink. Many of us experience this inner struggle between our rational conscious mind and our subconscious mind, which is holding limiting beliefs around alcohol. Limiting beliefs like we can't have fun, we can't relax, we can't socialise without alcohol. These beliefs, of course, are the result of decades of exposure to marketing and peer pressure, convincing us that alcohol is essential to a happy life. Claire and I both drank for decades, and we agreed that our neural pathways for drinking were more like superhighways than pathways. When we start to build our alcohol-free life, we're looking to replace that superhighway with an alcohol-free pathway, which will in turn become a superhighway if we stick at it and continue to do the work. Claire came up with a lovely analogy that her sobriety was like a garden. And just like a garden is never finished and it takes work, so does sobriety. If someone asks her advice about a family member who might be drinking too much, she's not afraid to point out those red flags. And I so agree with her that we should speak openly rather than just say, oh, I'm sure he's fine, which is the usual response. And that's why I'm so grateful to tribe members like Claire and others who've come on this podcast to share their stories. 
It means that people can hear that having a problem with alcohol doesn't mean that we're like the homeless tramp which society likes to portray as the alcoholic. They can hear that people with a problem are just like them. And more importantly, they can hear that it is possible to make a change and to go on and be so much happier and healthier without alcohol. Claire is quite sporty, and as she got into her late 40s and 50s, she would often take a break from alcohol for a few weeks to prepare for a race, but she always went back to drinking. One day she heard me talking on the radio about our Sober Spring Challenge, a 66-day challenge that we do every year. It appealed to her because she loves a challenge. So she signed up for the daily emails, but she wasn't really planning to participate in the chat groups. But then she realised that she always told her students that they must comment and participate with their online forums. So she decided that she'd better participate in the groups. And in fact, she threw the book at it. She listened to a podcast today and followed all of our recommendations. We've discovered over the years that it's the people who stay connected with the community who are the ones that succeed. Connection really is the opposite of addiction. As Claire put it, she went into the Tribe Sober experience lock, stock and barrel. That's definitely the way to do it. It's no good tinkering around the edges of sobriety. A short break here, another challenge there. We have to treat it like a project, like a job, and make it our priority for those first few months. Claire realised early on in the challenge that she'd be continuing her sobriety beyond the 66 days. So she aimed for 100 days and then six months, which many of our challenges do. It's so important to avoid the overwhelm which comes from the F word, the forever word, so small steps is the way to do it. Of course Claire would get triggers to drink now and again, but she kept herself on track by reminding her just how far she'd come and how she wasn't prepared to lose the progress she'd made. She loved the Tribe Sober community and felt that some of the members had seen inside her own head She so enjoyed mixing with people who really got it. And that's exactly what you need when you're starting out on this journey. You need people who get it. Your drinking buddies will tell you that you're boring and your sensible friends will tell you to just cut down a bit. You need people who understand the struggle. People who understand that you're worried about your drinking and people that understand that, no, you can't just cut down a bit. It's impossible. I asked Claire how she sustains her sobriety now that her first year has passed. Well, she stays connected with Tribe Sober, goes to our coffee meetups and participates online. She listens to the podcast and reads the quitlet. In other words, she tends her sobriety garden, which is so important. And we love it when our members stay connected. After all, ditching the booze is only 10% of this journey. 90% is building a life you don't want to escape from. And that's exactly what Claire is doing, as well as inspiring and encouraging other people. I loved it when she said that she owned her sobriety and was happy to talk about it with anyone who asked. Her top three benefits are sleep, self-esteem and a feeling of peace. She realises that she no longer has to be the one starting the party or being the last person to leave. So during that conversation, Claire mentioned a few techniques that may be of interest to you. So let me run through them. She talked about the power of journaling. Do you remember she said, journal, journal, journal? Some of us have journaled for years, but others are not so sure where to begin. So we're going to run a pop-up week on a Facebook group to help people who want to get started with journaling. That's going to be at the end of August, so watch this space. And straight after journaling week, we have our annual 66-day challenge, which begins on September the 1st. That's the challenge that got Claire started on her journey. There'll be more info and sign-up pages for Journaling Week and the 66-Day Challenge on the website soon. But if you drop me an email, janet at tribesober.com, I'll send you the links as soon as they're available. Or perhaps Claire inspired you to join Tribe Sober with her kind words about us. 
I love the way she said that our members can do things at their own pace. No shaming, no one-size-fits-all program. With only 400 members, we really are able to offer a personal service. So to sign up, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Let me end by reading you a message from one of our chat rooms. This one is from Irish member Darren. He came to a workshop nine months ago and he's been sober ever since. So this one's from Darren. I'm currently sitting today nine months alcohol-free and Vincenzia's post above has inspired me to reflect on my journey so far. Firstly, I cannot underestimate how important having a community or group can be when we're going through this transition. I spent a number of years of mental acrobatics and agony deciding should I drink here, should I drink there... The day I decided no more was October the 23rd, 2022. I'd just been to a wedding with my partner and I drank myself to near unconsciousness. Needless to say, I completely made a fool of myself, embarrassed myself in front of my partner's parents and said some very personal things to her family. I woke up the next day, not remembering anything, of course, as alcohol completely wiped out my prefrontal cortex and limbic system. However, the only thing I did remember was being totally wiped out, but still accepting alcohol, even though my partner was pleading with me not to. The next morning, I took my dog for a walk, and on that walk, I thought, what is the point of all this? Later on that day, I decided to do a bit more research and I discovered that I had a condition called alcohol use disorder. I know it's a broad spectrum, but I was well and truly on it. When I discovered this, a feeling of peace washed over me and from then I decided enough was enough and I reached out to Tribe Sober and never looked back. With the help of Tribe Sober and their wonderful coach Lynette, I've been able to build a newfound resilience and self-confidence and for that I'll be forever grateful. Oh, thank you, Darren. That was so inspiring. Your tribe is so proud of you. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.